The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Psalmist writes these words, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. For the Lord has remembered us, and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Lord, we have come into this place to praise you, to bless you, to exalt you above all things and all circumstances and all events. We've come to declare to any who listen and to one another that you are truly a sovereign Lord who does all that he pleases. You're not moved to fear or anxiety by the things that happen here. You are perfect and complete in all ways and sovereignly in control over every circumstance. And we come before you this morning, bowing before you, placing our lives into your care and trusting ourselves to you, a good and gracious Savior who loves his people a Savior who blesses His people, a God who delights to do good to His people and to care for their every need. And we've come, O Lord, because we realize, Lord, our desperate need for You. We've come because we recognize that we are imperfect people who fall short of Your glory and grace in so many ways each and every week. And we come carrying with us into this place our sins, even our sins from this very week, perhaps even this very morning. And we come casting those sins before You in repentance, seeking Your forgiveness. And You've promised that when we do so, You will cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. You are faithful to forgive us, to restore us to make us whole and right and clean again. We desperately need your forgiveness this morning and we seek it from you in full faith that we receive it. And we come not only because we need that, but we need your very presence in our lives. We need to feel you close to us. We need to sense your very presence in the real circumstances in which we live. And we know that as we gather together and we sing praise to you and we Join our hearts in moments like this of prayer. and We open up your word and study together. It's in the midst of that that you reveal yourself, that you draw near to us. And you minister to us in the very personal and real ways that we need you most. And so we've come with expectant hearts. We've come ready to worship. We've come acknowledging you as sovereign over all things. And we've come looking to you like children looking to our parent to provide everything we need. And you are utterly sufficient for everything. And so we rest this morning as we worship you. We cast our anxieties aside as we focus on you. We pray that you would just fill our hearts with peace this morning. With comfort 
with your love. Lord, we pray that everything that we say and everything that we do this morning would honor you and glorify you and that you would be exalted among us. We're grateful for your word, O Lord. We're grateful for the opportunity to open it together and to study. And we're grateful for our pastor who has prepared this week to open up this very psalm to us and teach us. We pray that as your word goes forth, that it would go forth this morning with power and authority and that it would literally transform us and that we would leave this place different people because of the encounter we had with you through your word. You speak to us, O Lord, this morning. We listen. We're your people. And we honor you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This is my last um, sermon before my sabbatical begins, which begins a week from tomorrow. Next Sunday will be my last Sunday here for ten weeks. It's never happened to me before. (laughs) But I do pray this will become a common thing for Grace on the Ashley. It's my first and last sabbatical. Um, But it needs to be part of the church's ministry mindset. I think it's important so that what has happened to me and others from time to time in ministry won't happen to Pastor Greg or the next person down the road. Um, I'll be out of touch for ten weeks. And um, we've prepared for everything that I do now to run better than it does when I'm here, I think. Uh, If anything goes haywire, um, then um, it's my fault. Uh, But you can't contact me, so too bad. (laughs) Just fix it. We are used to sabbaticals around here, uh, as a number of churches are. They serve different purposes. Um, In academics, they serve a certain purpose. In church life and other professional lives, they they serve different uh, purposes. Uh, But if you want to know about them, I encourage you to Google church sabbaticals and find out about it. I think there's um, a Lifeway article on the church Facebook page. They have a good explanation, too. When I'm gone, you'll notice some things that are different, especially in the area of music. Um, uh, You won't notice much more change uh, than that. Um, But it was a great opportunity for a short period of time to uh, give us a a chance to do some things that are sort of out of our comfort zone. And by comfort zone, I mean we've been doing it the same way for the last six years. And so let's, um, let's have somebody different and do some things uh, different. And I think uh, we, by God's grace, have succeeded in that. We are not able to, we're able to do uh, something I hadn't thought we would be able to do. We, we've invited someone to come in and help out during that period of time, somebody very capable. And um, I think you'll be excited uh, about her. Um, and a part of that is to give us, a, since it's a, a, a brief period of time, give us a chance for somebody to come in and give an outside view from an outsider. What's it look like? How, why do y'all do this? Why do y'all do that? You know, to ask some of those questions that we don't ask because we just do it. And um, so that'll be a good opportunity uh, for us during this period of time. A good chance for us to grow in our understanding of worship by somebody very, very capable and somebody to give us a different perspective uh, as well. So I hope you'll welcome this. You'll embrace this opportunity uh, to do something different for the next few weeks. I mean, it's not going to be crazy or entirely different. Just be a different person. And um, but it'll help us out. And I'm really excited about this opportunity for the church. We'll all be together next Sunday. Uh, to worship together, and uh, we'll introduce several new people to you next Sunday. I'm looking forward to our worship next Sunday. My thanks to the elders um, uh, for you giving me this opportunity, hopefully for my growth and uh, renewal of of spirit. Uh, Most of the time, uh, when a pastor takes sabbatical, his wife goes along with him. 
That will be partially the case here. But half of my sabbatical, I'm traveling out of the country, and Judy's not going with me. So I ask that you pray for her uh, during this time as well. Thank you so much for the privilege to do that. Okay, Psalm 115. Let's get, let's get to it. Psalm 115. Pastor Greg's read for you already. It's uh, one of the Haleo Psalms. Uh, just a little background <clears throat> to set this up. One of the Haleo Psalms in Hebrew, that means to praise, where we get our word hallelujah from. Um, <clears throat> the Haleo Psalms are, uh, is a name that's given to several, three different collections of Psalms uh, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 are called the Egyptian Haleo. And the only way I can figure that they're called uh, the Egyptian Haleo is back in Psalm 114. Um, the, the, the word Egypt is used. And so some, somebody had a bright idea and said, let's call these the Egyptian Haleo. I don't know exactly how that fell down. But um, <clears throat> also the uh, Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate put Psalm 114 and 115 together. We don't know how that happened either, but those two psalms are sometimes put together. But the genre and the themes of those two psalms are different. So clearly, they're two different psalms. But these, um, this group of psalms, 113 through 118, became what we would call liturgical psalms, or psalms that were used or sung in worship, um, <clears throat> particularly during Passover time, uh, during Pentecost, during the Feast of Tabernacles. The greatest significance of these Egyptian Halea was during uh, the Passover time. Traditionally, Psalm 113 and 114 is sung before the Passover meal, and Psalm 115 through 118 is sung after the Passover meal. So remember, in the New Testament, when after the Lord's Supper, Scripture tells us, I think, in two of the Gospels, that before they went out, they sang a hymn together, Jesus and the disciples. It's a good possibility they sang Psalm 115 that night um, as they were going out. There are two other sets. The great Hallel is Psalm 120 through 136. And the final Hallel, Psalm 145 through 150. There's also a set of three psalms um, that they call psalms of communal confidence. Uh, This is something new to me this week in that it's a psalm. There there are three of them, and and Psalm 115 is one of them that uh, describes a great stress on the nation and trust in God's deliverance. There are three, the Psalms of Communal Confidence. These Psalms, since they clearly were sung, all of them were sung, but in different ways, were antiphonal as such, meaning growing up in church, you might have done a responsive reading out of the back of the hymn book or somewhere. And and, uh, antiphonal, that's what that means. The the priest or the pastor would say something and the people would respond. And so even in the case of 115, it could be divided up. Verses 1 through 8 is the people. Verses 9 through 11, the priests. Verses 12 through 13, the people. 14 and 15, the priests. And 16 through 18, uh, the people. There could be other ways for it to be sung antiphonally. Um, but uh, that will give you an idea of how these psalms were sung in worship. In more recent history, um, <clears throat> from those early days, this first part of verse 1 has become used in several different ways as well. Uh, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In, um, in 1415, uh, the, you may have studied, um, is Paul here today? Certainly Paul, Justin has studied the Battle of Agincourt or Agincourt, 
as the, as the French would say, um, October 25th, 14th, 15th on St. Crispin's Day, the great defeat of uh, the English over the French. And Henry V, who was fighting in the battle, actually declared at the end, and legend has it, we don't know for sure, declared that the soldiers that survived recite the Te Deum, which is a hymn of praise, and also this, the non nomine, um, non, non nobilis, uh, for <clears throat> at the end of that battle. That Latin, non nobis domine, non nobis sed nomine tuo dub gloriam, is that whole first verse. And by the way, there was a great movie. This is now, this is free. I'm not going to charge you for this. There's a great movie in 1989 that came out called Henry V. You should watch the movie, but if you don't watch the movie, there's the most gorgeous choral piece based on this one line of Scripture in Psalm 115. Uh, the, the non nobis uh, is just beautiful. Just Google that piece and listen to it, and you'll be in tears when it's all over. Um, so, okay, that was free. But scholars don't believe, as it's used as a, in a, as a hymn of victory, don't believe that this is necessarily a psalm of victory. Rather, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a plea or, uh, or a protest based on, based on verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? God's people are in trouble. Clearly, God's people are in trouble. God's people are under a heavy burden. They are being addressed and attacked by the nations. And certainly, we can turn that message over to us today. That The question for us today would be, when the burden gets really heavy, where do you turn? Where do you go when life gets hard? Where do you run when the... Weight becomes unbearable. Much of the world turns to alcohol. Where do you go when it gets tough? Ice cream? We laugh, but there are those who do that. Where do you go? Video games? When the stress comes... Some people overexercise. Some people turn to drugs. Some people turn to their work. I like it. Um, I, I don't pay attention to it anymore because I don't do it. But but, I, and this this is one of the reasons why I don't do Facebook anymore because I love it when people have a really hard day and they go to Facebook for therapy. Have you noticed that? I'm having a really bad day. The kids are all misbehaving, and it's really, really awful. So all of you give me all of your sympathy and love, and that's really all I need. So I won't turn to God. Facebook becomes my therapist. When life gets hard, there is a temptation in front of you, and it's one of those things. When life gets really tough, there's a temptation that is standing right there in front of you. Are you going to turn to it? Are you going to turn to God? Where do you run other than God? That's the question for you to ask yourself today. We know, too, from these first few verses that there's only one God who truly deserves our worship. Is that the one we turn to? The one true God, the only one that deserves our worship? We see that in verses 1 through 8. Um, and we'll spend most of our time uh, in, in these verses. <clears throat> we need to see first, though, that, that that first verse is the goal. He's not setting up the theme. That's the goal of the passage. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The theme is, why should the nation say, where is their God? That's really the theme. The direction of the psalm is going toward the first verse. The key is verse 2, facing a hard time. And it's a hymn. A lot of songs are written. 
aren't they? A lot of songs are written when somebody's facing a hard time. Happens a lot, especially in country music. Your girlfriend dumps you, you write a song. Your goldfish dies, you write a song. Your pickup truck dies, you write two songs. That's sort of what happens here. But the truth of this song, dealing with this particular trial, is far greater than anything you find in a country song. We're in this place where the nations around are saying, where is your God? God's people are being mocked. Maybe you can relate to that today. Israel looks like their God has abandoned them. There was a time when Israel's enemies feared their God. Remember that? We've read stories about that. Going into Canaan, there was a time when Israel's God was feared by the nation. But the God hasn't performed any of those mighty acts any time recently. And so the God of victory that they knew, he, he's, he's powerless now. Where is he? God's people are being mocked. The unbelievers, the heathens, the pagans, the world is mocking God's people. And this could be us just as well. And, and the world is mocking us, by the way. And they're basically saying, here's my God. Where's yours? Here's what I worship. I can hold him in my hand. Here's what I worship. Where's yours? You don't have anything tangible. But here's mine. I can't see your God, but I can see mine. And the psalmist begins his protest there in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that's just the beginning of his protest. He turns the tables He begins to mock them with a statement of confidence. We may not know what God is up to. His will might appear very, very confusing to us. We are confused. But that's fine because my God is in the heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Our God is sovereign. He doesn't answer you. He doesn't answer me. He doesn't answer anyone. He's in absolute, complete control. He's the authority above all authorities. He's not moved by nature. He's not moved by the will of man. He accomplishes his will and Everyone should want a God who is so sovereign, so omnipotent. Otherwise, you have a God that's vulnerable. Otherwise, you have a God that's lower than you. So this is what the psalmist says about his God. My God's in the heaven. Our God's in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Let me tell you about your God. Their idols are silver and gold, work of human hands. Mouths do not speak, eyes do not see, ears do not hear, noses do not smell, hands do not feel, feet do not walk. They do not make sound in their throat. The psalmist, the psalmist is a prophet or a priest. We don't know who wrote this psalm. Just the folly of idolatry. What he addresses here. Worship statues of silver or gold. Isaiah talks about statues of wood that they've made themselves, the works of men's hands. They they fashioned those those works with with um, with body parts, mouths and eyes and noses and hands and feet. They can't do anything with those body parts. They can't speak or see or hear or smell or feel or walk or even talk. Men worship things that are obviously below them. Isaiah talks about 
the folly of idolatry in Isaiah 44. I'll share some of that with you. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, that's a rhetorical question, I'm sure. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks out, marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man, the beauty of the man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. Kindles a fire and makes... He takes the wood. He takes this piece of wood. He can burn it. He can bake bread with it. He also fashions a god with it. Just a piece of wood. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. Falls down to it, worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And that's not just ancient history. That's today. Out of that same piece of wood... That you warm yourself. You've created a God in your own image. Eyes they have, Isaiah says, but they do not see. Spurgeon said, he must be very blind who worships a blind God. We pity a blind man. It is strange to worship a blind image. They do not walk. He says, Spurgeon also says, the meanest insect has more power of locomotion than the greatest heathen god. It's a beautiful contrast that the psalmist uses here between the God of Israel and the pagan gods. He made everything. They themselves are made by men. He's in heaven there on earth. He does whatever he pleases. They can't do a thing. He sees distress. He hears and answers the prayers, accepts the offerings, comes to deliver, saves his people. They're blind, deaf, dumb, senseless, motionless, impotent. Augustine made a snide comment about these idols as well. He said, even the dead surpass a deity who neither lives nor has lived. In other words, even a dead person is greater than a heathen god. At least one time he lived. And then we see the most telling, most powerful verse of all. Hear this. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The psalmist understood that Men worship things beneath them, brings them lower. And this is virtually a spiritual law. We become like what we worship. We worship a true God we reign in right, who reigns in righteousness, the God perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. We become like Him. We worship false gods. We become like them. Alexander McLaren said, Worship is sure to breed likeness. A lustful, cruel God will make his devotees so. 
Men make gods after their own image, and when made, the gods make men after theirs. Same principle which degrades the idolater lifts the Christian to the likeness of Christ. Translated for us, the world worships idols of their own creation. Now, you probably don't have some idol shrine in your house. Probably few of your neighbors do, or it's becoming more and more common these days. Do possibly, I'm sure you don't have that sort of thing even quite possibly in your neighborhood. But we have idols. We have idols. Materialism. Sports heroes. What I was thinking this week, what is it about when a sports hero speaks about politics, he's supposed to be just well-versed in it for some reason. You understood that? They're a hero in anything. They're supposed to be an expert in everything. Never mind. That doesn't have anything to do with this. Idols of religious figures. All sorts of idols. They have one thing in common. They're powerless to provide any type of blessing. They're powerless to provide anything. Only possibly some self-satisfaction that you've done your deed for your religion. They're powerless. And this psalm provides one of the most graphic comparisons between the power of the true God and the helplessness of man-made idols. And we make them. You pause for a minute and you think about yours. And the world is taunting, mocking questions. Where's your God now? I mean, I get that question. I get the question when the world asks me, where is your God now? Because we want to say God is sovereign, God's in complete control, and then they read the newspaper. Well, no, it doesn't look like it. Or quite possibly, they look at your life. They point to God's created by their own hands and boast about how impressive they are. They fall on their faces and they break into pieces. Every single one of them. You become like what you worship. Worship Jesus Christ, you become like Him. That's sanctification. Worship empty idols and you'll find yourself becoming more and more empty. You become like the object you worship. Further, if your God is of your own imagination, and He's no better than these idols, we see that a lot in the world today, If your God is not the sovereign God of Scripture, you're in real trouble. But we run into people every single day, quite possibly you here today, every single day, who have some idea of what you think or who you think God is in Scripture, and so you sort of created that in your head. That's your idol. That's not the God, the sovereign God of Scripture. Or you run into that person who says, you know, I'm not sure about all that Bible, but, but I, just, I just want to be loving and kind like Jesus. Well, you might want to read some of the things Jesus said, too. And what he believed. Just think about it. If, you, if you're going to create a God... Wouldn't you want to create one that agreed with you? If I'm going, I'm, if I'm going to create a God, I'm, that God is going to agree with Frank Cohn. Absolutely. And that's what those I was just talking about do, and possibly some of you. You know a little bit. You haven't studied Scripture. You don't know that much of Scripture, but you have a little bit of idea of what God is like. And so you've created this 
God in your head, and I guarantee you that God agrees with you. He's not going to... Con- Why would you create a God that would contradict you or tell you what you don't want to do? Our world creates that God all the time. Gods and idols that say you ought to be able to believe and do whatever you want to believe and do. And to be fair, a God that believes the next person ought to be able to create a God so that they can believe and do whatever they want to believe and do. The only problem is what their God has told them to believe and do. When it contradicts what my God tells me to believe in God, all that God stuff just falls apart. So it's not a world driven by faith. It's a world driven by sight. Another point is... The world doesn't have the ability to, to see or experience our God. That's fair because it's true. The world doesn't have the ability to see. We experience our God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't we? They don't have the Holy Spirit, so they mock us because they can't see. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the only way that you can see God and understand God is for the Holy Spirit to give you sight. We're blessed that we can know and we can understand God because His Spirit has given us sight. And the only way they can see some sense of who God is is by seeing God in us. It's a problem, too. As God is being perfected in our lives... People should see that. That's how they see. The world is supposed to see God in us. We can expect, and legitimately so, we can expect to be mocked when they don't see God in us. Oh, you call yourself a Christian? Hmm. Oh, you're one of those evangelicals, whatever that is. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. There's only one God who deserves our worship. Van Gameren says, False worship is not innocent but demoralizing. Ultimately, the worshipers will perish together with their perishable idols. Hey, you might be in a trial. You might be going through a hard time. There might be a heavy burden on you. Things might be tough in your life these days. But the bottom line is, where else are you going to go but to Him? There's nowhere else for you to turn. Only one God truly deserves our worship. Only one God deserves our trust. Verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This is another place where it might be some antiphonal singing. The priest would say, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. The people would say, He is our help and shield. The priest would say, Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. The people would say, He is our help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Sort of a priestly admonition for these Three different groups. You've got the nation Israel there. You've got the Levitical priest in the house of Aaron, those who lead the worship. And then you who fear the, the, the God-fearers. Possibly he's talking about Gentiles there. Are those who've converted to Judaism, the God-fearers. The religion of Revelation is so very, very different. The people don't come with images because He comes to the people. He comes with blessing and protection. He is our help and our shield. That's why we trust in Him. 
Trust in the Lord. Abandon your false worship. He's your help and shield. We need to hear that. It's just common sense exhortation from the psalmist. You trust. He's your help and your shield. He's your protection. If God's people, as verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. If God's people as a whole should trust God, then those who are their servants, that's the house of Aaron, the, the Levitical priesthood, that, that, that those who are called their servants should trust in him even more. And for those who are on the fringes, the Gentiles who now know God, who've become God-fearers, must trust as well. Everybody's covered here. Everybody. Where do you turn? You trust in the Lord. We need a shield. You trust in the Lord. You need a shield. Only one God deserves our trust. Only one God blesses. Verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. Bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. The same three groups. Both the small and the great. Boy, I like that part. Both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will bless us. You don't, not just, don't, don't just look to him for your protection. He's your help and your shield. Look to him for your provision. He will bless you. He's the one who brings blessing. Not something you can create or something that you can manipulate for your own pleasure. But one who, out of his steadfast love, we saw the first verse, blesses. Spurgeon says, it is his nature to bless. Listen to this. Write this down. I'll tell you what, David, leave this up. Oh, no, JP, leave this up long enough. I get complaints. Leave this up long enough for people to write down. It is his nature to bless. It is his prerogative to bless. It is his glory to bless. It is his delight to bless. His promise to bless. And therefore, be sure of this, he, that he will bless and bless and bless without ceasing. Got it now? So now you can do like Robin and just take a picture of it. So if you didn't get it all written down, call Robin. Blessings are pronounced for those who trust the Lord. And I love that part, both small and great. And small is first. See that? Both the significant and the insignificant. All who trust. The small will not be forgotten. God will bless them. You feel small? You feel small? You're right there. You're first on the list. Trust Him and He'll bless James Boyce says, God's blessing is for you, whoever you may be, if you will only stop trusting in yourself and your own devices and instead begin to trust God. Then he pronounces what that blessing is. I read it. May the Lord give you increase. You and your children may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that's in a world that's in the middle of the Israel's in the middle of of a world where the nations would, would 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 worship gods of fertility. So he says, you and your children, where nations would, would worship the God of fertility to in, increase their, their, their fields or increase their flock or increase their family. And, and, and yet in giving blessing to those who fear and trust the Lord, the psalmist recognized that Yahweh, the true source of blessing, extends even to our children. Yahweh, L-O-R-D, see that in all these verses? That, that's the covenant God, Jehovah, the one who made heaven and earth, Yahweh. Exalted among the idols of the nations. Why? Well, Yahweh just happened to make the heavens and the earth. What about your little puny God? And so we must praise the Lord. Verses 16 through 18. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. 
The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. He has all authority over the earth as creator. He's given a significant dominion of earth to the children of man, he says. Complete confidence in the psalmist's mind that God rules in the heavens and he gives us the earth, dominion over the earth. And since he has, the psalmist says, we must praise him. Look at that verse 17. It's kind of confusing. We must praise him. Don't wait till you're dead. Do it while you're here on earth. He's talking about earth. That's what he's dealing with in verse 16. The earth he is giving. He's talking about the earth. Don't wait until your grave when you go down into silence. It's too late. Praise him now while you're here. For being your help and your shield. For the blessing that you receive from him. It's an interesting point. Praise God now while you're alive. Don't wait until you're in the ground. It'll be too late. Dead people don't praise God, so don't wait. Spurgeon said, We who are still living will take care that the praises of God shall not fail among the sons of men. Our afflictions and depressions of spirit shall not cause us to suspend our praises. Man, that's so convicting to me. That last sentence, our afflictions and depressions of spirit shall not cause us to suspend our praises. And I was thinking, if this is what Jesus sang after that Passover meal with his disciples, then you know, he was thinking, this is the last time I'm going to sing praise to my Father with my disciples here on earth. No matter how many times you question my God, I declare we will bless him, and we will bless him forever. And even when we don't understand him, we will bless him. Even when we're confused by his will, we will bless him. Even when we can't explain what he's up to, we will bless him. Even when times are hard, we will bless him. We don't turn to alcohol. We don't turn to video games. We don't turn to reality shows or Facebook or drugs. We run to God who made the heavens and the earth. And we will worship and we will trust the one true God. Last Spurgeon quote. Though you ought to read the treasury of David, every sentence is this good. Though the dead cannot and the wicked will not and the careless do not praise God, yet we will shout hallelujah forever and ever. Amen. In reading somebody else, I realize that in that hymn there is a fountain filled with blood. William Cooper addressed these thoughts in a couple of verses. One verse which we rearrange for some reason, and the other verse, which you've never ever sung in your life until today. But you know this verse, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, and shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And then related to verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord. He says, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor, lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Lies silent in the grave. Lies silent in the grave. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. And then he moves on to verse 18. Lord, I believe Thou hast prepared. Now, you've not heard this. Unworthy though I be, for me a blood-bought free reward, a golden heart for me. That's sentimental of the time, but just His symbol of heaven. It's Cooper's symbol of heaven. 
for me a blood-bought free reward, a golden heart for me, to strung and tuned for endless years. That's the forevermore he's talking about in verse 18. And formed by power divine to sound in God the Father's ears no other name but thine. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Why? Why? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, no praise is due to man. Do you have a body? Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Do you have your health? Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Do you have the comforts of life? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Do you have friends? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name glory. Do you have family? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Do you have the means of grace? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Be glory. Do you have the hope of glory? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. All praise and worship is due to God. Why? Because of the sake of your steadfast love and because of your faithfulness. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. During our hymn in a moment, I encourage you if you have questions about this message or truth of God's Word or the Gospel, or if you um, need somebody to pray with you, Pastor Greg and other elders will be in the back, and we encourage you to make your way back there and spend some time with them. They're waiting for you. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this anonymous psalmist who gave us so much. We pray, Lord, that you might, by the power of your Spirit, cause us to put aside those idols. First of all, bring them to mind. Some of those idols we turn to, we're not even aware of that we do it. Bring them to us so that we can pray that you would deliver us from them and trust you and you alone. Do that working in our lives this very day. And if there's one here, Lord, who's worshiping other things besides you, doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, today is the day of salvation. Turn their hearts toward yourself. I pray for your glory. Amen.